This is The Yay, I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is The Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! As always, we want to thank Central Works for sponsoring The Yay. Uh, Central Works, a new play theater headed up by Gary Graves and Jans Leifler. Central Works, reinventing theater one play at a time. We want to... Um, Thanks, Central Works, for sponsoring us, and we invite others. If you want to sponsor the Yay, please do. We also want to thank Mallory Samara. She is our consultant. She's been uh, helping us out improving the Yay, and we even have individuals on our YouTube uh, channel who, who are um, subscribers. And at the end of the Yay, I will uh, shout out those names and uh, thank you for subscribing to the Yay. Well, we, yeah, I know. It's wonderful. We have a wonderful guest, Anne Yubi Kobori. She is a, uh, a local playwright, an actress, a director. I don't know if you've directed. Um, I know you directed when you were um, at Santa Clara University. I don't know if you still direct. But um, I think you're mainly a playwright. Is that correct, Anne? I actually jump around a lot. So I started out mostly acting um, in school. And then I started playwriting in college, um, first at Sarah Lawrence and then at Santa Clara. And that's where I also started directing as well. Um, and I still direct. I have directed for Utopia. I've also directed for San Francisco Shakes and for some uh, sort of children's theater productions. And uh, now I'm kind of trying to focus on playwriting. So, so that's yeah. what this year has been like. Yeah, I know. I've been very, very impressed. You've done a lot of work uh, with um, uh, Playground. And uh, that's how you and I uh, know each other. That's how you and Norman uh, also uh, know each other. No, I know her from actually. Wow. Oh, <laughs> shots. Yes, shots. We'll I that, think that's but... the first thing we ever did together. Yep, that was yep. that was funny. And I think the both <laughs> I of you love did, those photos. Yeah, the both of you guys did as you like it too. Correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 We'll talk more about that um, as I begin uh, our podcast every week. Norman, how's your week? Lordy, what a week. I'm commuting. <laughs> I'm tired. I, you know, you, when you start thinking back fondly on those COVID days, you know that the world has changed because I'm having to drive all over the place now. And I'm this coming week, I will have a day where I will go to the College of Marin in the morning and then immediately go down onto the peninsula to teach. Um, I have been going to the College of Marin. I've been at the College of Marin a lot this spring. And I've been going there early, teaching another class on Zoom, on their Wi-Fi, and then going and modeling in the evening at the College of Marin. So it's just been crazy. And every time I get a day off, I'm like, I, I don't have to go anywhere and I don't have to turn this on. Oh, my God. That's a typical Norman G week. I mean, it's Hustle City. I mean, you know, you're here, you're there, you're teaching, you're doing. I'm you too know. old, man. I'm too old for this. <laughs> Any, any Zoom stuff at all? Any acting via Zoom? No, no. Um, just, you know, got some auditions out there. Fingers crossed. Yeah, oh, fingers. no, God, the big thing was the um, the workshop that I did with the Eugene O'Neill. Oh, that's right. The, uh, the barn. I called yeah, it the barn. Well, yeah. you know, it was all virtual. Somehow we pulled it off. And so now we're in this feedback loop. And, you know, and it was horrible. This guy started the meeting the other day by saying, so what worked and what felt good about it. And I'm like, well, I was in charge of the whole thing. So everything that worked, I'm thrilled about. And every little thing that didn't work, I, I hate myself. So I don't want to say anything, but I got to hear other people saying it was amazing. Norman just, you know, managed to keep everything flowing. And I'm like, 
Hey. Yeah, that's where you, hey, as long as people are happy. Yeah. And I always feel, you know, when you have these uh, classes, I don't know if, do you teach Anne? Oh, yes, she does. I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, uh, the only, the only good, you know, classes are the ones that you get out of it. You know, if you apply yourself as a student, it's not so much the teacher teaching. Of course, that's a part of it, but it's also the student getting as much out, like asking questions and being active and engaged. Um, there are uh, some current events, um, some really bad current events. We've had, you know, yet more shootings uh, going on. Right. And Can't keep count anymore. Yeah, and you know, um, so the Indianapolis U.S. Postal Service, a 19-year-old, a disgruntled worker, ex-worker, and you know, he got himself an AK semi-automatic, and you know, just went crazy. And you know, what can you do? Um, there's also um, so there's a Brit. I try to squeeze some uh, fun stuff in here. Um, a British woman gave birth twice. She gave birth three weeks right. after giving birth the first time. Did you hear about this, Anne? No. Yeah, I just saw this the other day. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's uh, they call it superfetation. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, that's I had no I had no idea. The more you think you know about the uh, the anatomy of us, <laughs> <laughs> the more we get an education. And uh, there's been a uh, unfortunately an up an uptick of assaults. You know, there have been assaults on the Asian American community. But I'm, I'm surprised when it happens here in San Francisco, because I would think that the most um, hospitable um, place, if, if you were, would, would be an Asian American, would be here. But uh, Ching Ling Lee, 53, on Saturday was assaulted. And also they made an arrest on Dwayne Kemp, who assaulted an Asian couple uh, on April the 4th. They made the arrest this week. Where was uh, that? Um, I think I don't have the whole article here, but apparently some guy just, you know, just took a swing at the guy at the man uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, you know, assaulted his wife. I think it was just a sort of a just a pedestrian walking down the street and then boom, just attacking uh, folks. And it's crazy. Um, and I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on I mean, are do you feel more worried or less worried? Is it something that's always been happening or is it just something that the news is just bringing out or is there something new happening where there's, there's Asian American hate? I mean, I'm interested in you know, your take on it, if you have a take. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think it's something that has probably always been going on at some level, um, but is largely unreported. I think that's a huge problem within the Asian American uh, and Pacific Islander communities is that people keep to themselves and um, there's, you know, some distrust of authority. And I think just this idea that, um, that you should deal with things on your own um, and that you won't be believed. So I think there has, it has been going on, but um, you know, I think the pandemic and, and all of the aspersions cast to the Asian community for, you know, creating COVID um, that, that that has created this huge uptick in attacks and, you know, people just taking random swings at people on the street um, and especially attacks against elders. And it's pretty painful as a member of that community to see that happening and to, to feel, you know, scared when you walk down the street and, and um, that hasn't, you know, really been a fear for me as, like a 30 year old woman, I feel like I'm pretty in shape, you know? Um, and I, I generally don't have that kind of fear when I go out on the street, but now I do. 
and definitely for my grandmother and um, for my parents, you know, we're a lot more cautious now in our day-to-day life. Um, and, and I know that there are communities that that is a reality every day. Um, mm-hmm. And before I didn't feel that I was, I was one of those people and now I am. And so I think it really, you know, it does increase the empathy for, for people who live with that every day and who live in fear of, of the police every day. Um, but Oh, I'm getting all emotional talking about it, but uh, yeah, no, no, and, and it's emotional. Yeah, yeah. But, and it's one of those things where you know, because as playwrights, like you know, I, I consider myself a playwright as well. I'm not as uh, I want to get to the level where you are, where you're just writing prolifically. But we write about the things that happen during uh, us during the day, and uh, although this doesn't have to do with theater, it does trickle in. I, you know, like my good friend David Stein wrote "Appointment at Sonora," talking about the you know how Latinos are handling, you know, the zero. Um, you know, Trump's policy on, uh, you know, illegal immigration mm-hmm. and uh, and all of the other things that are going on. And um, Lisa Khan, you know, she's writing about what's happening in the environment because of the laws that we have. So the things that happen in life affects us. I'm sure, does it, does it affect your writing? Do you write about some of the things that affect you, Anne? I'm sure it does. Yeah, definitely. And I think that you know, there's there's always an urge as a writer to to write about things that are happening right now and and things that are personal. Um, and I think the challenge is trying to to process that material in a way that is not re-traumatizing for for an audience or for actors. And you know, looking at the state of current events and saying, how can I help? transform what is happening, this, you know, unpalatable news um, and either spread more awareness or dig deeper into the psychology of why this is happening or how we can prevent it or what we can do to heal the community. Um, And so I think it's taking it one step further from, all right, I have this news, I have this information, how can I use this um, in a productive way in my writing, as opposed to it just becoming this sort of like junk that just makes everyone upset, you know, and is, and is maybe a little bit too real, a little too soon. Yeah, I do believe that is the challenge, uh, not to, um, because, you know, it just becomes news again, or, or you just, you know, re-spewing what we already know, how to take it and and make it into something artistic, uh, make it into something as art, something, something that the audience can come out of the, the theater saying, okay, I've learned something, or this is a perspective that I hadn't thought of, you know, regarding that. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, I only had one last thing. It's definitely one of those Mm -hmm. issues that, you know, trying to make art and yet directly make some sort of social commentary is a huge balancing act. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, some... And we are going to get to talk about uh, the way Anne balances this. Exactly. Um, And you know about Best of Playground, right? Yes, I do. And I'm excited yeah, we're gonna talk more about it yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely definitely taking social issues and finding a way to to give us an actual living breathing story mm-hmm. i did have one last thing but i don't know if i wanted to uh, so some oh, let's high, have it. some high school students in aledo texas engage were engaged in a slave trading game yes and it's like you know the more i think that we are generations away from the racism all of a sudden that you hear these, you know, stories about, you know, young kids still doing the things that you thought it would be totally, totally gone. And um, I just, I, I just wonder when 
we can push ourselves away from you know this the, you know the racism stuff but in any well, case I would yeah say the positive on mm-hmm. that one is that's not positive at all but all the number of schools that in the last month or two have made a commitment to doing things like adding not just African-American or black history, um, but to just expand the lens of what American history is to make that a requirement in their curriculum. It's it, that's a movement that's starting to spread across the country and every place that is trying to limit it, like they particularly are targeting the 1619 project and saying that can't be done. And what is it? Critical race theory can't be taught here. There are legislators and school districts that are going, no, we need this stuff. And what you're saying is really these sort of racist dog whistles. We're not going to even deal with that. We're going to talk about the facts, the truth of this history, and we're going to make sure our kids know it so they can't get caught up in some silly thing like, because if you think about it, something like that, let's, you know, let's play farmers. Let's do this thing. Let's be the gold miners. You know, all these sorts of things that we do to try and make kids appreciate history on a more visceral level. They're fun until you start digging underneath it. So I'm happy that even though we're clearly not free of things like the slave trade, um, that it's starting to become part of the curriculum and a necessary part of the curriculum as opposed to an additional Black History Month and then we don't touch it anymore. No, feed it in so that it's everywhere, so that we always hear about it, so that you don't hear about anything without hearing these stories. Right, because I think that a lot of the kids who are, who have the callous towards um, being sensitive towards either, you know, Black, um, you know, African-American or Asian-American or Latino or Native American is because they don't, they don't talk about it at home uh, or at least not constructively, or they don't talk about it constructively in the classroom. And when you start injecting what you're saying, Norman, that sort of stuff into the classroom, then you you generate you create a generation that will become more normalized and will have more will be more sensitive and will say, hey, that's that stuff's not cool. You can't talk about that sort of stuff. Any case, enough of that. Let's get into an origin story and Yumi Kabori. Uh, tell us, excuse me. How you got involved Salute. in theater? Yeah, thank you. Um, tell me, where, where were you born and raised? I was born in San Francisco. And Woo! yeah, <laughs> and spent some time. My family traveled. They, uh, my dad worked for the Asia Foundation for a while. So I actually lived in Thailand and Bangkok when I was a baby. Um, and then came back and then pretty much just lived in Berkeley for my whole life. <laughs> um, went away to New York for college and then actually came back. Right on. Do you, have, do you have any siblings? Do you have any siblings? I have one younger sister. She's amazing. And um, yeah, she she does really amazing hip hop dance and she just joined a new company. Um, and oh, what's yeah, her, her sort of. Oh gosh, I cannot remember the name of the company right okay. now, but uh, it's great, and <laughs> um, it's a it's a Bay Area company, and um, yeah, and then she works in compliance uh, for Stitch Fix. Right on. So, were you were you involved in theater when you were young, like in elementary or high school? Yeah, I've been involved with it since I was like uh, four or something. Um, and pretty much did it all growing up. I went to school for it, uh, to college. Um, and I was always really interested in, you know, making my own company or my own shows. So that started out early on with productions of The Nutcracker in the living room and things like that. But I always had to be the director. 
Um, so definitely I'm always interested in, you know, in other people's ideas, but also in that sort of artistic vision. Um, That's very cool. You know, we always hear from guests, you know, let's say someone went to a production and they had not had theater on their minds at all. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, that was so cool. That's what, I mean, what was the, can you remember what was the thing that, that told you in your mind, you know what, this is something that I really want to do. I started doing it really young. So I don't know if there's that, I can't, I don't know if I can remember the first moment of that. Um, but I definitely remember seeing the Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet film. Um, when I was like eight or something pretty young for that film. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just thought, Oh, I want to be her. <laughs> um, I want to say those poetic words and be on this balcony and, and look real cute in that little dress and <laughs> um, be this sort of romantic figure. Um, so I think that was when definitely my love for Shakespeare started. Nice. Um, so you said you went to college in New York. What, what school did you go to? I went to Sarah Lawrence College for about two years, um, which was interesting. Uh, a lot of good, you know, theater classes and stuff, but I think the the sort of social scene there is very different from California. Um, we, you know, we've had a lot of conversation with um, there are a lot of folks who've gone to school and some of them had an almost negative uh, reaction. We had um, who was uh, Margo? We had Margo Hall on and she talked about how she wasn't appreciated because she was a black woman who wanted to get involved in theater. And she didn't receive the um, she wasn't I guess it wasn't receptive. Uh, to where she was going. And so, you know, she finally, it was a wonderful episode that we had with her where she talked about, you know what, if you're not going to accept the theater that I want to do, then I will, I will start producing things, you know, on my own. Right. Um, did you have that sort of a uh, resistance or uh, did you, um, what, well, what to talk about your, more about your experience. Your journey there. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that it definitely felt like I was working, you know, with, with teachers who were working professionals in New York and had done film and a lot of Broadway stuff. And that was exciting. Um, you know, that, that school in particular is used to be all women and now it's probably like, I don't know, 20% uh, like male um, and 80%, you know, other. Um, and that was an interesting dynamic because I had not experienced that before being in, you know, Bay Area public schools. Um, and I just was not used to, I think, East Coast culture. Um, people aren't as sunny and friendly as in California. I know that's a terrible stereotype, but I felt like it was true. It's, it's true. Um, I went to school in New York and it's very abrupt. And I'm from, you know, uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, it can be very, very abrupt and abrasive. So I can attest to it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it was a culture shock to be come from Berkeley, where there are so many people of color and to go to upstate New York. That was that was pretty weird. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I gained some valuable things there. Um, but ultimately, I was glad to come back to California and finish out undergrad here. And you studied acting or um was was it drama that you studied? Yeah, yeah, I studied theater arts. So with, I think, a focus on acting. But once I went to Santa Clara, I branched out into more playwriting classes and directing and um, 
yeah, I'm glad I did. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, uh, what what made you uh, make that switch? I mean, I've always liked writing, um, and I <laughs> I've been on this journey. I think from you know writing prose, and I still write prose, but it's harder. Um, and and understanding that I have this ear for dialogue, and you know, really like this pace and the action that happened in, in theater. And I just done so much theater as an actor and sometimes as a director that sitting down to write a play felt so free and easy and that, you know, I can write it so quickly. Um, and it was less this like intense editing process of am I crafting the perfect sentence um, and more just like, how do I feel like these characters are communicating and what is their voice? And they start writing themselves. And, and that was, definitely really exciting to feel that creativity flowing a lot faster um and yeah I guess you know being able to put up your own story and and you know create the representation that you want to see in theater yeah you know um I remember when I started getting into playwriting it was one of the reasons was although I had really I had been writing I had written a journal really all through you know um um high school and in college and I still write it now but I guess I got involved in in playwriting because I was like you know what I've got stories in my you know my system that I want to get out there and I'm not seeing it on stage did you feel that way were there some stories where you and Kabori was like you know what I'm not seeing that let me I, I want there's some stories I want to get out there I mean what I guess one basic question is what is it what would you consider an Ann Kabori type story Mm. <laughs> I, hey, um, hey. I, I, so I have to say, um, so I, um, I met Anne through shots and that was first meeting her just as a performer. And we were doing this thing where the other two characters in this skit were cross-dressing. So it's a weird way to meet somebody and first work with them. Kind of like, okay, what's this about? And then I saw a piece that um, Anne helped to produce and perform in um, a production of The Seagull. And I was just amazed. I was so thrilled to see Chekhov come to life in that way. And that was directed um, by Marissa Wanless, right? Mm -hmm. Directed yeah. by Marissa Wanless, yeah. yeah. And so I got in touch with them and said, hey, I'd be interested in working with you. So the next time they were reading one of Anne's plays, they were like, oh, would you be interested in reading? And I went, yeah, sure. And so I started to get to know Anne's work. So I'm really curious to hear your version of what, what it is, what is an Anne Kabori play? Um, well, there's definitely gonna be some kind of love or romance in it. Um, I think that it's important when you're telling stories, especially stories that involve some kind of social issue or political issue that that there's that, you know, that feeling and that, and that, um, that sort of more passionate energy and hopeful energy to carry it through. Um, and, you know, everyone loves a good love story or a bad one. Um, so I think that they definitely always have some kind of romance in them, whether it turns out well or not. Um, and then I tend to, even though my plays are populated also, I think fairly heavily with male characters, um, I tend to write from the female perspective and, um, you know, one of the the main things I I like to write about and to share are um, stories where women have experienced some kind of trauma, um, whether that's depression or um, another 
uh, mental health issue or uh, sexual assault. So these are stories that I think that, you know, often get told in a sort of uh, like, oh, this, this happened to you, but we don't really want to deal with it way. Um, and I think it's, it's important to address it in terms of how does the woman move on from this and how does she strengthen herself in spite of what happened? Um, and so my first big place seeds was about that. Um, and also investigating, you know, how does an aggressor, someone who has committed this kind of act, deal with his life and, and sort of try to repair relationships and become a better person out of that, um, which is also not often addressed. <laughs> mm. um, and then I, I really like retelling stories. I like fairy tales. I like mythology. I like fantasy. So trying to bring in these elements um, of music and of dance and of storytelling and different sort of imaginative um, ways of, of telling stories in theater. Very nice. No, no, no. It's it's uh, very cool. I um, <clears throat> it's funny. I was thinking about uh, we had Scott Munson on twice, and we've actually had a lot of playwrights. We've had um, Jeannie Baroga, um, Conrad Paganaban, but I remember I was asking Scott, how do you write? Because, uh, you know, Scott and I, as men, you know, let's say we have a female character and we may think we know what a female thinks. We really don't. Um, so I guess I'll flip the question with you. You know, how do you how do you find different voices? How do you create characters without them all sounding the same? What is your technique for that? I guess so it's interesting to sort of dissect your own writing in that way. Um, I'm sure a lot of them come from people I've met. <laughs> so real humans somewhere in the world that I've co-opted a part of their voice or their personality. Um, I think it's also for me, I'm, I'm looking less at their gender when I'm actually writing the, the script um, and more uh, just sort of at, at their like immediate human wants and motivations and their interaction with the other character. So I don't write a lot of monologues. Most of my dialogue is pretty fast paced. I write a pretty short length of line generally. Um, and I'm really just looking at the way the characters are interacting with each other. So maybe I'm sure, pop out, but. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure actors appreciate that. You know, there's not a lot of memorization. And I, you know, generally as an actor, if I pick up a script, especially a new script, and I can feel a rhythm, like there's a sort of rhythm and an energy that two characters have. It's, it's a lot easier. I don't know, like Norman, I mean, you can tell me, is it, isn't it easier, don't you feel, to memorize lines or dialogue when it's sort of fast paced where you can sort of feel the rhythm? I, I, it's, it's one of my least favorite questions in theater anymore is how do you memorize? Because I couldn't tell you, I can't. Each show has their own requirements. Um, I know we did um, Everyday Alice, a piece that Anne wrote um, that touched on Alice in Wonderland, but wasn't wasn't Alice in Wonderland. And yet there were these characters that popped up and it became more about the characters. It really was just sort of figuring out what was each character. That was the memorization process. I think the biggest play I've ever had to memorize was uh, My Children, My Africa, which included this monologue that I think was literally like 11 minutes long. <laughs> oh, God. And... And I couldn't tell you how I did it. I used every trick that I knew. <laughs> and even then I felt like I was just 
you know, trying to hang on to that damn thing every night. Yeah, statements, I felt the same way. But I mentioned um, just rhythm, you know, because they're tight, especially with new playwrights. Let's say you get a string of dialogue and every now and then you're like, why is the character saying this? Or, you know, what what's going on here? But- the rhythm is, yeah. And you always have to kind of figure out what those rhythms are. What, In fact, that's the biggest clue to me. The biggest clue to how to learn your lines is to kind of figure out where's the playwright going with this. So is this something where the characters just sort of, you know, um, David Mamet style, just sort of rapid fire, blah, 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 blah. Or is there a point that they're trying to get through and you need to take that time and nail those things down? You know, each playwright has, you know, if they if they found their voice, they have rhythms. And do you focus on that, Anne? I mean, do you, when you write a play, I remember asking uh, Scott and I think Jeannie that as well. Sometimes uh, the dialogue comes first, or let's say they have to map out in their minds, okay, this is how the play is going to end. Or let's say, I'm not sure how it's going to end, but this is how I want it to begin. Or they may, how do you begin writing a play? (laughs) Ah, great question. Yeah, great question. I think it depends. When I'm writing, as I've done recently, a lot of 10-minute plays for Playground and for a couple of other festivals, it's very different uh, than writing uh, a full-length play. And so with a 10-minute play, we often get some kind of prompt around a theme or a line of dialogue that you have to include or something like that. And that's, that's a helpful grounding, I think, to start with. And then really, I think I try to figure out who the characters are first. And then once I have the characters in the sort of very basic contextual situation of what are they doing, what's happening, what is their relationship, then I can sort of springboard from there. And I can pretty much in one sitting, my mom always jokes about like I trance, I have this, I get in this like mode where I'm just sort of staring off into space, but in my mind, like everything's happening and all the gears are turning on the play. And then I know I, exactly how that is. Yeah. <laughs> And then I start writing and I can actually write the tenant play pretty much in one sitting. I just stay there for like maybe three hours or something and just type it all out and it just sort of flows. So it's less about creating the structure of the plot, I think, and more about figuring out who the characters are. Um, For a full length, I definitely want to know what my main plot points are. I mean, maybe I'll write a scene and sort of explore a bit and find the voices before I do that. But usually I have some idea in my mind of what is the plot? Who are these people? And what sort of do I want, not the end result to be, but like, where do I want to leave the audience? Like, what do I want to give them as a little present at the end? Um, Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I know as an actor, I usually, when I first pick up a script, I focus on the beats or the objectives, like, you know, let's say, you know, where are the major emotional points or where does the character switch? You know, like, uh, let's say if there's a character, I'll focus on, okay, what is my, what does my character want in this entire thing? What, what are the obstacles? Um, do you think along those lines, uh, I'm thinking more along the full length play, uh, do you, I know an actor focus on, let's say, beats and objectives and things like that, but do you as the playwright or do you really just let the plot go or do you really just focus on the character? Do you just write and just let those things happen naturally? I think that I don't write with that sort of consciousness of where are my beats? Where are my objectives oh what does this character want have they achieved what they want in this scene I don't usually think of that I go back and I look at that and and make sure it's in there um but I think as I'm writing it's really maybe knowing the 
the point A that I start at and the point B, where do I want to get to in terms of plot? If I have, I'm writing a new play right now um, that's a dystopian play and I think, okay, at the end of the play, this character, uh, this young black man who's a tax auditor living in this dystopia, um, <laughs> who's where he's assigned to do everything. Um, he starts out and he has this relationship with a simulator who basically simulates emotional relationships for him because he doesn't have that. So instead of prostitution, they have simulators where they give you emotional relationships. Oh, it's almost like her with a Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, yes, yeah. but it's actually a real person. She's not a computer program. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so she's almost like an actor. <laughs> so he starts out and this is sort of where he is. And then I know at the end of the play, I want him to have reached this point where he has been part of this underground revolution to uh, sort of get rid of the authority that's in charge. And they've succeeded in doing that, but also sort of revealed that it was a facade anyway. Um, and that it's sort of just this machine that's in charge of everything. And, and they're trying to figure out how to have this new system of government now. Um, and they want him to be the face of it. Um, so he has to decide whether he's going to play along um, or just allow the people to sort of create their own, their own government. Um, so I know that's the end. <laughs> so I know the beginning and I know the end and I sort of have plotted out different scenes within that. But I think once I sit down to write a scene, I pretty much just let it go where it wants to go and, you know, maybe discover new things that happen that I hadn't planned for. So maybe there's a few new plot points. Maybe there's a new character. Maybe a character goes somewhere I didn't expect. So I think it is just a matter of like letting go once you have the structure. I hear you. No, I totally hear you. I'd love to hear uh, some of your experiences with uh, some of these companies like SF Shakes, Utopia Theater. Uh, and Mavic, well, Utopia done... Theater is her company. Is so that? Oh, really? Hear about that? Yes. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Are you? Have, did you create Utopia? I did. Yeah, I founded it in college, um, and we've done I think three full professional seasons with equity contracts. We're on a bit of a hiatus right now, just because of pandemic and funding and things like that. Um, but yeah, how did you, how did you create Utopia? I mean, I I couldn't even figure how to. I mean, I. Every time I think about creating a company, I'm thinking, man, I need a lot of money and I need a space and I need people. And I just it just <laughs> almost goes over my head. How um, I guess, how did you create Utopia? Yeah, I mean, we we're pretty scrappy and with no money at first because I created it in school. So it was mostly just me and a couple of college friends doing the shows um, and we weren't, you know, really paying ourselves that much. Um, so it. I think it, it started out that way. And um, once Marisa came on board um, as the artistic director, then we were able to sort of morph into this, um, like it's not, it wasn't a nonprofit. So I guess <laughs> like sole proprietorship type of company um, where for one of our productions, we did a Kickstarter. And then actually I was pretty fortunate in that my my dad, um, Michael Kabor, was our executive producer. He liked what we were doing and he said, I'm willing to fund, you know, two of your seasons. Um, so yeah, I mean, we definitely like kept everything real tight and, um, you know, often like rehearsed at houses and things like that. Um, but, you know, we were able to have equity contracts. Norman was one of them. And um, I think, you know, put up some really strong, different productions. 
Yeah, and you've had a lot of wonderful individuals, in like Norman and also Elizabeth Carter. She worked. Uh, she Seagull. Yes, I'm, she yeah, was she in Seagull. Seagull. She was. She was fantastic. It was. It was a lot of. It was a lot of fun. The cast in general was. In fact, what uh, Anne Hallinan's birthday was last week. I was like, oh, I hadn't seen her in anything in years, and I saw her in that, and I thought, wow, you got you guys got these amazing performances out of people that I know and people that I didn't know. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So, I mean, are you still actively involved in Utopia or has it gone dormant or uh, what's happening with Utopia? Hiatus. It's on a bit of a hiatus right now um, because I'm basically in charge of everything and right now I'm playwriting. Um, but I think we started at the beginning of the pandemic. So um, Marisa is now in New Hampshire um, with her new baby. Um, oh, wow. And- I didn't know she relocated. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's yeah, right after right after her show, right after as you like it. Yeah, she's like living on a farm out there. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so one of my good friends and colleagues, Ella Ruth Francis, um, came on as sort of the like uh, associate artistic director and then artistic director. Um, and we put up this really exciting production, immersive production in the bindery. It's this, like this bookstore in SF um, that was of her adaptation of three sisters. So we did that and then the pandemic happened and um, we had this sort of ongoing season of Zoom type of offerings. So a lot of sort of staged readings over Zoom, some new play development. Um, One of them was with um, Ed Gonzalez Moreno who's now moved to New York. Mm. Um, It was with his new play, the Puerto Rican Society Club. So we did a little fundraiser for that. Um, but I think at a certain point we felt a little zoomed out <laughs> and we were thinking, okay, let's let's wait, let's develop our own work and, and take some time and see sort of where the future is headed and when we can do some kind of live theater again. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of folks feel that way, uh, just being zoomed out. But also it's a great time for playwrights and, and just developing, you know, your your new work, you know, now that people are on hiatus and hopefully we'll get back to some sort of normalcy. How was working with Etza Shakes? Um, you did As You Like It, I believe. Yeah, so I actually worked. You're a company member, aren't you? I was. I, I worked on staff of SF Shakes for, I think, like almost six years um, mm-hmm. as their education program manager. So I was sort of behind the scenes working with their education department. And then I also was in several productions and directed a couple of things with them. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Rebecca is is doing some great things as artistic director and they've still continued working through the pandemic. Um, they did Lear and I think they're going to do Pericles now. Yeah, Pericles is, is auditions right now. Yeah. Yeah. Do you miss being on stage? I mean, are there parts of, I know you're focusing on writing, but are there aspects of you that miss either directing or um, I can't imagine you not being on stage. I really can't. That's what my mother says. I could enjoy the play, but I'd be like, but how come Anne's not on stage? (laughs) Thank you. Um, I do miss it. I, I think I will still be on stage, you know, and, and be acting, um, but I find that I have a lot of stories that I want to tell in my own voice and a lot of stories that no one else is going to tell because they're not in my head and they don't have my writing, whatever, (laughs) Um, muse. So I think that it's in a way more important for me to articulate those things with my typewriter and my pen um, 
and to still act and still be in other people's work and maybe in my own work. But I think that there are things that I can do in writing that no one else can do. Whereas, you know, many people are on stage and many people have that talent. So. Yeah. I, um, and obviously I, I think about a uh, playground. I mean, you've done a lot of pieces for playground and obviously they, they really appreciate, you know, the work that you do. Um, how has been that collaboration been? I mean, all right, do you enjoy, um, playground or do you do you sort of chomp at the bit of doing more long length Good question. Long, yeah <laughs> longer pieces full-length place plays yeah I mean I I love playground I've been having a great time with it it's my first year and um you know it was on zoom so that was challenging in some ways um but I think they've really found a good way to keep the feeling of live theater going, even though it's on zoom, I think it helps that they're only 10 minutes long um, just for audience attention span and, you know, the limitations of zoom, but I really like writing to the prompt. Um, I've been able to work with, you know, some great directors and actors and some people that I've never worked with before. I actually had never worked with Jeffrey Lowe, um, you know, and I had admired his work and, and it was really exciting to have him direct my play. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think it's great. And I, I do enjoy the short form. I'm was fine. That, uh, was that the, uh, the give me the sky or was that the other that he did? That was the art of suffrage, which I don't know if it's, did they publicly release who's going to be in I don't know. I don't know. So we're so we're having this conversation where we're sort of talking around. I know that that, uh, it's coming. It's coming soon. (laughs) But I I think I think things haven't been done. So, you know, people who listen to the A should know that I'm involved with Playground and I'm involved. I'm involved. I direct mostly, um, but I've also been involved with the selection committee. And another thing I'd like to circle back around to with you is the diversity, equity, inclusivity piece um but yeah it just it definitely means that i know parts of the conversation where i'm like has jim finally published this yet so i don't know that best of has been announced yet but um, i don't think it has been but it will be soon it will be soon (laughs) but um you were saying jeffrey lowe and working with him and i'm sorry remind me what that piece was again the Yeah, so that was The Art of Suffrage. Um, I think that was the first one I wrote, actually. Uh, And it was based around suffrage was the theme. Oh, right. No, the the concentration camp. Yes. 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 Oh, I remember that, too. Yes. Yeah. So my family um, on my dad's side um, were in the... the Japanese concentration camp, American concentration camps uh, in Manzanar and in Poston, Arizona. Um, And so that's just been a huge part of my family history. I've gone on pilgrimage to Manzanar and- Oh, you've been? uh, Yes, yes, my grandma. Um, What is that like? Oh, it's it's intense. I mean, you know, there's not a lot there now. It's just the desert, but they've created some sort of replicated barracks and there's a museum. yeah, and it's it's pretty bleak. It's pretty hard to go there and know that your family was in prison there. Right. Um, but you know, I'm glad that they're educating people about it. Definitely. Um, so I based the play in Manzanar and with two young people who um, were sort of struggling with should I vote? You know, in a yeah. system where they're allowing me to vote, but they're imprisoning me illegally um, because of my race. Um, and, and and one of and the young man who who wants to fight for his country because it's World War II and he wants to fight the Nazis, but uh, but the the young woman just does, cannot understand that, right? Because 
they have no other rights. So. Yeah, it's a, it's go ahead, Rich. No, I'm just going to say it was a very powerful piece. I remember it. I totally remember it. Well, and it's, it's something I feel like you capture and, and it's sunny. I think Jeannie Baroga similarly deals with this. Um, as somebody growing up in America, and particularly when I got to California and got to schools where there were all kinds of kids, I didn't always have a sense of ethnicity. And it's not like I wasn't aware of it, but we were all the same. We were all the same. We all dressed the same. We all liked the same movies, read the same books, you know, played the same games. We all did these things. And yet I realized growing up that there's a way where we were all sort of told to keep that other part out of the public discourse. Um, and so you become a little bit invisible or your heritage becomes a little bit invisible. One of the things I thought you captured in the play beautifully that that deals with that is so the guy comes in, you know, he's like talking about baseball, playing guitar and she wants to do swing dancing. There are all these things that are just iconically American, but we don't always remember that this wasn't just white people. <laughs> You know, so I love that there's a way where you find a way to touch on things that an audience should have no problem understanding and relating to. And yet we're saying, but but remember, this person is a part of this, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was so sweet. I mean, it, you know, and it's very, very and the very last part of it where he talks about where I guess the because uh, they're brothers and sisters. Right. I think <laughs> they're actually not. That was something we talked no. about in production of because he calls her cuz as like a slang right. term from the 40s and we're like does that make people think they're related so <laughs> because i never uh, thought no, i they never thought like, they were romantic uh, go ahead yeah they have a romantic sort of interest but you know nothing fully solidified i think mm -hmm. Excuse me. Salute. But yeah, but uh yeah, but it, there was a wholesomeness about it and um yeah. when he talks about why he wants to fight it um it just it just um it, it was very very touching and i think i remember um I think the uh, the Hawaiian. I think he's a senator. Was a senator, Dan Iowain. I'm, I'm sure I'm. Oh, I know the name. you're talking about. And but he he in a, in a way in a way, in a way yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. He talked about fighting, you know, in uh, World War II as a Japanese uh, American, and he mentioned sort of the same things that you, that you mentioned uh, in in your play in your little mini play. So, you know, with ten minutes, you you, you really um, struck struck the hammer i mean you struck the nail so it was really really powerful um very much did you see the recent thing with the um it was a, like a city council school board thing and this guy gets up am i patriotic enough and he, oh yes i remember that oh yeah i'm like come on in your face dude what do y'all say to that <laughs> yeah exactly and i want to talk about the um have you thought about the business, I guess, of, uh, you know, because as a playwright, you sort of have to, you know, as a, and it's something that we talk about on the all the time, as an actor, we have uh, our resume, and we do auditions, and that's how we get, you know, hired. But as a playwright, what do you do to get your, your name out there? I mean, you can talk about the plays that you've had produced, but have you thought of yourself as a sort of a business, as sort of marketing yourself? Have you thought about that aspect? Um, I'm learning how to do that. I don't like selling things, so <laughs> it's not my strong point. Um, but I'm I'm learning how to do that, and I think that you know a lot of it as a writer, whether you're a playwright or you're trying to get your prose published, which I'm also trying to do once I finish it, um, is it's learning how to deal with a different type of rejection. I think as an actor, I'm very used to dealing with rejection in auditions, um, but it's sort of like oh you 
you know, you act, you do a monologue or a scene or whatever, and then they decide whether or not they want you in their play. Um, but when it's your writing, it's different because it feels like, well, I made this. Here it is. And you rejected the thing that I made. Yeah, <laughs> so right. It's like, like, it's, it's like a child. It's like yeah, a child. It I birthed this play and it's mine and no one else has it. And it's not like anybody else's and you don't want it. And that makes uh... me sad. <laughs> So, so I think it's, it's learning to deal with that different type of like sort of on paper rejection. Um, but also thinking where are the places that, you know, my work will serve their mission and their mission will serve my work. Um, trying to find the right venues, thinking about who do I already know, you know, who wants new work. Um, sometimes starting small, I think doing playground and doing a couple of other festivals like with the pair have been really helpful because, you know, it is increasing your audience. It means, you know, these producers and they're more willing to say, okay, let's look at a full length now because you've done work with us. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the, that's the smart thing to do because, you know, there are a lot of budding playwrights out there. They're like, Hey, you know, how do I, how do I do it? How do I become like Anne Kabori? Because you've had a lot of plays. I mean, uh, produce, I mean, you know, Utopia, your company has done a lot. But uh, you're getting a lot of exposure. So I'm sure others are like, wow, I want to follow that path. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's I, nice. I hope so. I'm looking at other players and going, hmm, how do I do what they're doing? Well, and they keep, and it's so funny. I, I, so Play Cafe is going to have me do a thing. And it's, um, I forget what the actual title is, but it's basically the, how a director can be the midwife to your baby. And, 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 it's billed as a Q&A and I'm so grateful that they're calling it that because I'm like, I don't have all the answers. I really want to just start making these connections between people. You write your play in that your room in your vacuum. Some people actually do it on a typewriter, I hear. A real typewriter. I may do that again because I miss the uh, the old Selectric. The uh, of course, uh, we're, we're old, old Skoggy, so whatever. <laughs> but... Um, you know that um, I want to have that conversation with the playwrights, local playwrights, because I'm like, this is where we're at. And it's a shame that the people who do focus on marketing seem to do it by sending their stuff other places. And that's great. But you'd like to you'd like it to come home. And so I was recently talking about that. And somebody said, I know who you're talking about, because I said a local playwright was complaining about it. And I'm pretty sure they think I was talking about Michael Gene Sullivan. And I'm not. Because I've watched that and I hear his rants. He rants on Facebook regularly about this. No, there are other playwrights who are equally as well, if not better, established. And yet it's still trying to have that conversation is is so tricky. Yeah. One question for you, Anne, um, now that Norman brings up the relationship between the playwright and the director. And usually it's a playwright who's alive. Um, but um what has your relationship been with directors? I'm sure, and there's something that Jeannie had talked about before. Jeannie Baroga had mentioned that one time she sent her play to, I think in Boston. And when she went to actually see the play, she was horrified. She was like, oh my God, what did they do? Yeah. Uh, without, te- without telling her. So um, how, how, have your, how has your relationship been with folks who have directed your, your pieces? I mean, it's been largely positive, but I think part of that is because I self-produced. And so I, had a huge hand in selecting the cast and also in selecting the director um, and you know working closely with someone who I really trusted like Marisa. Um, I didn't write Three Sisters, uh, Ella wrote it, but we worked with Angie Higgins from Silicon Valley Shakes who I've worked with a lot, she's amazing, but we trusted her you know, to really shepherd the work. And, um, and I think that on the one hand, you know, as a playwright, you do have to take that step back and say, 
I need someone else to come in, you know, and, and give some kind of um, like artistic guidance or vision, or even just a different interpretation of what you've written um, and to get that outside eye or to get it from a couple of other producers or whoever you're working with. Um, and you have to step back. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, if, if you're a playwright, especially a playwright who has worked as a director, who's worked as an actor, you also understand those sides of it. So you've already thought about what it'll be like when someone has to say the lines and what it'll be like, you know, to bring the whole thing together in this big artistic vision on stage. So if you've already done that work, you don't really want someone coming in and turning that on its head and saying, I understand this better than you because <laughs> I'm interpreting it. I'm like, no, 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 I, I already did that. So let's just talk about it so that you can be the one who puts it on stage, but that it's still my vision. But have, um, you, have you had those difficult conversations where it's like, hey, I don't know where you're going with this? Um, actually, I don't think I have. But I think it's because either I direct my own plays or I have like, you know, I'm lucky and have a great director who, you know, will check in with me or who's sort of already on the same page. Um, so luckily, not yet, but we'll see <laughs> now that I'm sort of submitting to other theaters. I do want to say that I think that if a playwright has worked as a director, worked as an actor, you know, um, that they can direct their own work. <laughs> But they need to have outside input at every stage of the process, whether you're getting more of that from actors, whether you're getting it from other directors who come in and watch or a producer who sits in um, or a writing partner or somebody. You need to have other eyes on the work for sure. And but, you know. That's just yeah. my, my opinion. <laughs> no, no, I definitely agree. I was thinking about John Fisher, who uh, I think, I'm not sure if he still runs Theater Rhino. I think he does. I think he does. Yeah. I mean, but he, you know, who knows these days what anybody is doing. But. <laughs> yeah. But he is one who will direct, act, and produce, and sort of do almost everything on his own. And he explains why he does it. There are a lot of folks who are like, well, you really need to stay away from um, you know, to have other eyes look at it. But also it reminds me, I, I went to uh, the playwriting class at the Berkeley Rep that um, uh, Gary Graves, Gary Graves yeah. uh, runs. And there were a couple of students. It was very clear because, you know, you have some writers who are very well-rounded, just like you and, you know, they've directed, they've acted, they've built the sets, they painted the sets, you know, they, they you know, they know what it is to, to make a theater. But then you had some writers who were really in their heads, who um, were sort of isolated and they had this whole universe in their minds and they wanted, you know, they had, I would just say, unrealistic um, ideas as to where their play is going to go. And you can run into a lot of problems with that. Norm and I, you, you know, you and I've talked about that. Uh, you work with some writers and you're like, okay, I'm going to work with it, your play, but I'm also going to let you know where the limitations are. Well, I mean, that's, you know, the whole notion of the play or the playwright as um, a, a play as a baby that the playwright has created means that you have to have a certain level of respect. I don't have to agree with you about your baby. <laughs> I do have to respect that it is your baby. So, you know, if I even if I'm going to say, wow, your baby's fat, I, you know, I should probably find a better way to say that. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah. who cares if your baby's fat? Because lots of fat babies turn into amazing people. So, yay, your baby's not starving. 
maybe that's the positive way to say it. Yeah. No, the analogy works because if you're taking care of a baby, regardless of how you like the baby or not, someone trusted you to take care of the baby. So it is your job to take care of the baby. That's why they pay you as a director. So, um, but you haven't, it sounds like, and you have not had any bad experiences where you've had a play and you, you see it on stage and you're like, oh my God, that is not what I envisioned. No, no, I have not had that experience yet. Um, but I think that's also because I'm, I'm a little bit careful with my work and who I give it to. And, right. you know, if I have someone who I really trust, you know, uh, then yeah, I'm happy for them to do whatever needs to be done and say, actually, Anne, we should cut this line or, you know, I don't think we can achieve exactly what you've written here. How can we adjust to make it, you know, work on this stage that we have and the the, the tools that we have, you know, we, we can't fly someone in. So what else can we do? Right. Um, but I, I think part of that is on the playwright, you know, you need to, yeah, you can dream big, but you have to think about what you can actually achieve with the tools that you have in the theater that you're sending the play to. <laughs> so right. right. If you know what play you're sending it to, but also just keep in mind, you know, if you're working within a community theater who may not have, you know, any more than $10,000, you're not going to be able to fly in, you know, the sun, the moon, and the stars, you know, <laughs> on the grid and, and all of that sort of stuff you have to contain. And sometimes some of the best writings are by writers who know their limit, their limitations, the limitations of the stage and, you know, the actors that they have. Well, that's, and that's the director's job. I think um, as a director, I, I felt freed when I realized I could say to a playwright, I'm not telling you, to change your play, I'm telling you that I have limitations in what I can accomplish right now in this production. Can we adjust the play for this production? And if you like it, then make it part of the play. And if you don't like it, then think about how else you can you know, you can accomplish what you want to accomplish. But let me do it so we can get this thing up and put it in front of an audience and know that ultimately again it's your baby you're gonna i'm gonna give you your baby back and maybe i couldn't stop your baby from crying and you can so you know i i don't have all the answers <laughs> right right exactly and i did have two other questions but i know that we're hitting the one hour mark do you have to can we run a little over or do you need to go no yeah we can we can keep going for sure <laughs> okay two questions uh because you know now that i know that you created the utopia project i'll ask you the same question that i asked both Arene Almario, who runs Bindlestiff, and also Corinne Ritchie, who runs um, Plethos. As far as diversity as a producer, I know, th- I know that Utopia is at a hiatus, but when you were producing, um, was it on your mind to create diversity and also a healthy environment, especially for women? And I'll also ask <laughs> a piggyback question. Have you had to deal um, negatively being a woman on stage? Uh, just... Um, have you been treated with respect? Yeah, I mean, you know, diversity is definitely always on my mind uh, in its many forms. And I think when Maurice and I were looking at The Seagull, especially as a sort of our inaugural production, um, we really wanted to give opportunities to actors of color and actors of different genders to play roles that they would not normally get to play in the sort of traditional white European Western canon. Um, so when we cast the show, that's a lot of what we were thinking about. Um, and then, you know, trying not to put it in this box of how has Chekhov always been done and, and looking at, well, what can we do with this play to really give meat to the actors who are in it? Um, 
and and make it their own. So that's definitely always a concern. And um, I think that <laughs> in terms of my own career, um, I think it's it's less difficult once you're on stage or in the show. But I think that in terms of getting there, it's been difficult. Um, you're talking you know, about cast, casting or yeah, uh, casting, like yeah. just what you're even allowed to audition for, really. I mean, I guess technically you can audition for anything, but like, you know, are you going to, right. um, you know, is that worth your time? So there are a lot of products that I've not even considered auditioning for because I'm like, oh, they won't even think of me for this role or for this play. Um, so you, you end up typing yourself out a lot, a lot of the time. And right. Um, you know, and I think also one thing that I'm thinking about now is if this is my career, <laughs> such as it is, um, you know, like, what is my time worth? And, right. you know, yeah, there are some people, I will work for them for free. I'll do volunteer because I believe in their company or I believe in them and their work that they're putting out, or I just like hang out with them, you know, but, but otherwise, uh, if it's a new company or if, you know, I, I need it to be a job, then yeah, I'm not going to work for free because <laughs> right. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's anti-racist, you know, um, you have to, theater is a business, if, if that's how we're going to treat it, then you have to pay people equitably and you have to value people's time. Um, yep. And you can't just expect people to work for free because it's from the passion of their heart. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. If your definition of, of art is that thing that must bleed, <laughs> you know, that's fine. If you choose to bleed, that's on you. You cannot ask other people to join you in the bleeding. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Norman, because as Anne was talking, it reminded me of a, there was a previous podcast. I think you had auditioned for, it was, it was a Shakespearean thing. It may have been King Lear or something like that, but you knew you had calculated in your mind what the equity contract must be for. You were like, well, they can't give me a smaller part. So it had to have been, it may have been as you like it. I, I forget what it was, mm -hmm. but you had calculated in your mind, well, they have to be casting me. They have to be thinking me for this one particular role. And they gave you the role um, because we, when Ann talks about, well, why would I even audition? Because they're not going to give me this role or that role. I mean, I'm sure you calculate in your mind, okay, I'm auditioning for this play because this, there's this role that I'm looking for, whether they see me in this role or not, that's what I'm going to audition yeah, for. There's, so there's the business of it, you know, can I convince them that I should be in this part? And then there's the art of it. What would I like to do? I went up to Santa Rosa a few years ago to audition for Equus because I love Equus. Equus is one of my favorite plays. And I'm like, I could totally be the doctor. I could totally be the psychologist in this. I would love this. Um, and but, you know, it's an English play. So I'm going to go up there and do a British accent. I know how I react when I hear black people talking with any kind of British dialect. And I'm like, yeah, OK, so I'm going to make it an island. British dialect. That's what I'm going to do because I think that would still work. And yeah, I felt like I impressed the guy behind the table, but I'm sure that when they started talking about callbacks <laughs> and he pulled my picture up there, everybody else was kind of like, no, 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 we're not going there. So that was really a waste of my time. If I was needing the work, that was a waste of my time. But the part of me that loves to be an actor that wants to be able to bring these characters to life is like, oh my God, can you imagine that audience that walks in and sees this black man speaking with this in English dialect 
and telling them about this world, this play, and what that's going to do to their brains versus if you just cast a white guy. I'm, you know, I'm often thinking about that, but yeah, I remember what you're talking about, Ridge. I knew that there were some smaller roles and I was like, I wouldn't waste an equity contract on those. So therefore they can only be considering me for these other roles. Yeah. So I guess the consensus is you're going to go for it. If there's a role that you want, whether they think of you in that role or not, you're just going to go ahead and do it. I mean, I, I think I would. I'm not likely to drive up to Santa Rosa very often to do that if I don't feel like I've got a good shot at it. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. One one last question. And I mean, um, the state of the state of theater in, in San Francisco, I guess, you know, pre-COVID, are you are you satisfied with um, your work or, you know, how theater companies have treated you or are you frustrated? Is there more that you want? Do you want to eventually go to New York or do you want to write for film? Uh, where do you see yourself in the future? And are and are you happy with how things are, how I guess Bay Area has treated you? as an artist? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had some issues with multiple companies um, on how I've been treated, just in terms of not necessarily like huge aggressions, but just microaggressions um, as a woman and especially as, as an Asian American um, that, that I don't feel like I could really address because they're so small or so frequent. Um, and I think it's just ingrained in the culture. So that's always been something that I would like to see change. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not super satisfied with, <laughs> with, you know, the whole theater industry. I think it's not just in the Bay Area. I think it's everywhere. And there are some ways in which the Bay Area does it better. And there are some ways which they're failing. So, um, you know, I think as many people are saying now, there needs to be a huge culture shift. Um, you know, maybe we just need to throw it all out and start again. <laughs> Sometimes that's the only way to make the change instead of making small replacements in personnel, but the culture stays the same. So while I applaud a lot of the new hires that are happening in terms of diversity, I don't think that's going to change the whole industry. And, um, you know, I, I think film, I'm sure, and TV have the same problem, if not worse. So mm. I, I'm interested to see where things go. Um, I think in terms of my career, I would like to focus on playwriting. And if that means that I end up, you know, doing a lot of self-producing again and mm. trying to get grants to do the work the way I want to do it, then, then that might be the case. Or maybe I'll keep, you know, finding new communities and new homes where I feel like they're doing good work. Do you feel like you're limiting yourself to the stage or do you do screenwriting? Do you consider that that monster? <laughs> I'm considering it. I, I not really think I'm the person for TV, but um, I think a couple of my plays could translate well to film like Seeds, which takes place in like three different countries and, you know, World War II play. So, um, yeah, I think I'm looking into writing some screenplays but i know that's a whole other beast to get into yeah. so or youtube clips i mean you know they're you know people are using youtube to do all sorts of interesting things yeah well the um playground it seems to me kind of lends itself towards that especially right now where we're having to go what can i accomplish that will actually translate to these little boxes yeah yeah and that is one thing i think that is good about the zoom theater is that it really makes you dial down on your dialogue and your characters and whether that holds up because that's all that people are really seeing. There's no magic. There's no beautiful sets and, you know, intense right. choreography that you can really do. 
This yeah. wonderful lighting effect. Woo. Yeah, and, and it focused the playwright to focus really on dialogue. You know, if it's not dialogue driven, then it's not going to work on Zoom. So um, it's funny you mentioned, like, I think about Lily Tongue Crystal. You know, she was a fantastic, and I think she directed you in Allegiance. Is that right? She did, yeah. Oh, that's right. You got to do Allegiance. Yeah, no, no, it's fantastic. And she's another talent, a wonderful talent. And of course, you know, Asian American, but now she's in Minnesota. I think she's in Minnesota. Yep. Um, talent gone. And, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if we don't treat our talent well, we're going to lose it. So there it is. Um, well, I don't want to keep you up. It's it's one of Bay Area theater, though. That is one aspect of what is Bay Area theater so far. Yeah, yeah. So in any case, um, I want to thank you so much, Anne. It's it's 108, so I guess we better shut it down. Um, shout outs, birthdays. Lots of birthdays. Brad Erickson's birthday is today, uh, the executive director of TBA. I don't know if everybody knows, Brad started off as a playwright. And it was so funny because I remember even a few years into his, you know, his time at TBA, he was still trying to keep his hand in. It's like, dude, you are literally traveling the country, going to Sacramento, advocating for us. If you can find time to write a play, yay for you. But we, we have benefited from his artistic loss. Uh, Jen Coogan is somebody I met through Play Cafe, uh, the music cafe, musical cafe. Um, wonderful performer. And they actually do workshops every now and then. She and her husband um, do workshops, uh, musical theater workshops. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one whenever they do it. Peter Macon is a, an actor I got to do. I did a season at Cal Shakes. He was understudying Othello and we would stand on the stage after, you know, and we were also small, we had small roles in the show and we would stand on stage after everybody was gone. You know, people would be out in the audience and we would be out on the stage running our lines. And then I saw him and he, apparently he, he went to New York, ended up in different things, saw him on a Law and Order and ended up in Ashland. <laughs> and then I think got a recurring role on something recently. I don't pay attention to TV, but I know he is still doing it. Uh, Susan Dunn, more local. Um, she and her husband, Jeff Dunn, uh, run a reader's theater group in Alameda. They are also very supportive of musical theater scene here and the smaller theater scene in the East Bay. Her birthday today, uh, Jubilith Moore, I met when she was working with the No Space in San Francisco and they were doing uh, Japanese traditional theater, Kabuki and No Plays, um, Kyogen, all that stuff. And she's now in the East Bay making theater. Kimia, Kimia Chakri. I don't even know why I have the name. Oh, I do know why, through Cal Shakes, um, theater artist. Colin Thompson, uh, somebody. Colin, uh, my favorite memory of Colin is Colin and I actually did the Scottish play down at San Jose stage many years ago. And then we kept bumping into each other, going to Shakespeare auditions. One of us would be walking in and one of us would be walking out. And most of the time, neither of us got cast, but for years, that was our passage. Uh, Skylar Adams was in our As You Like It a couple of years ago, young woman who actually got to work with us on Jeannie Baroga's uh, Maddie May last summer. Uh, Will Ham, oh, I, should, I was going to leave that one for you. Oh, that's okay. Will, I'll leave it for you. happy Cole birthday, Alexander Will. Alexander <laughs> Smith is a, was a young actor that I met through Central Works. Uh, not so young anymore, but he's a daddy now. So, you know, times change. Somebody else who I'm sure Ridge has, I will skip over. Teresa Diana, Diane Elizabeth Horn is an actress um, that I met actually through Elizabeth Carter. 
Uh, Tony Ruiz is somebody I met through the Shelton Theater. Uh, Pearl Wong was with the Asian American Theater Company for many years, was a major force moving that, keeping that company alive. Uh, another one that I think you got, and the last one I have is somebody I went to high school with, Danny Gutierrez. Um, we would do musical theater together in high school. That's my list for the week. Right on. Well, I think you are holding out. Miss Kabori, your birthday will be three days from now. The yes. <laughs> <laughs> So happy uh, pre-birthday to you. You'll be, uh, well, 29. Be 31. 31. Well, yes. You, you I'll be 31. It's okay. I'm okay with 31. <laughs> Also on the 20th is Lance Fuller. His birthday will be on the 20th. And Lance and I, we uh, did Bat Boy the Musical and also Debbie Does Dallas the Musical. Uh, really, really funny guy. I think he's in New York now. So happy birthday to uh, Lance Fuller. Uh, Will Hammond, we talked about Will. Uh, Will and I, we um, had a podcast, uh, Black in the Bay, and also Will uh, did. Um, I first met Will. We were involved in the reading for uh, Before the Dream. The Richard Wright yeah, story. Richard Wright project. And he was in my little mini musical, uh, Nia. And so, uh, Will, happy birthday to you. Uh, let's Yay. see. Um, I have Susan Dunn. I'm trying to remember who. Yeah, I, I mentioned her. I oh, just you mentioned, mentioned Susan Dunn? Okay. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I know why I know Susan Dunn because she is a, yeah, she she does uh, play readings along with her husband. Yes, you talked about her. Uh, yeah. Also, also uh, today, um, a young. Um, musician Kelda. She calls herself Kelda Music and she is a local uh, singer and uh, we had her on uh, the Black of the Bay podcast. She's promoting herself. She's a sort of a podcaster, uh, singer, writer. She, you know, she's getting it all done uh, on her own. So happy birthday to her. And the last one that I have, oh, actually I have two others. Um, there's Ann Kuchins. Her birthday is the 15th, and I think I worked with her. There's a guy named Mike Ward who had uh, the ISIS Arts Collective, and uh, we did a uh, series of one-act plays, Summer Shorts, and that was in 2004, and that's when I worked with her. I have no idea where she is now, but happy birthday to Anne. And Paulo Salazar, who is a bindle stiffer, and uh, he and I, oh. uh, we did Stories High, and uh, Norman, if you, uh, you know, every time you come to my house and you'll see the picture of a black guy, with the, uh matter of fact, I think I can. Oh, shucks, can I? Yeah, there we go. That picture right there. Oh, he... yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you mentioned him last week. Yes. <clears throat> My audio has gone out. There it goes. Your audio is back. <laughs> My audio is back. But in case, yeah, he painted that. So he's a fantastic painter. And I think he's going to be our next guest. So happy birthday, Paulo. And is that it? That's it. That's all that I have. Uh, shows. Well, and if you've got some, you can throw them in. But uh, I'll throw out a few shows. Um, and these are, um, well, actually, you might have this one, Rich. So I'm going to skip it for now. Um, Theater First is doing a program they call More Than Grapes. It's about the Delano Pickers. Um, and it was supposed to start yesterday, but I was just looking online and it said that it was postponed. So I'm not sure what's going on, but I've just sent you all these links, Ridge, so we can put it out. I'm sure you have the links for neighborhood stories, so I'm not going to worry about that one. I'm adding in the quick fire monologue collaboration for writers and actors just because I got... I got they got me in for one and that was enough. I'm like, yeah, okay. Val, yeah, I saw Valerie Week had did one as well. And I was like, wow, she's getting back to it acting. continues. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it continues. Um, so I sent you the link for that. Um, and then uh, through Brava Theater Manifesto by Rotimi, Ak I'm going to mess his name. I'm Agbabiaka. 
Um, wonderful, amazing performer and writer. And he has done a piece that they have filmed and they are presenting starting August 22nd through the 25th. And then the last thing I've got is, I just started talking to Fool's Fury. It's weird because the person who is now running Fool's Fury, Deborah, Deborah Eliezer, um, and I went to San Francisco State together and they have a project that's coming up next week called the Library Project. Um, and so I got you a link for that. It's um, that's actually just happening on one day. It looks like April 25th. There are two shows, three o'clock and five o'clock. So okay, I'm, I'm shout out <clears throat> I've got. And okay. you got anything? Anybody you want to shout out? Any shows you want to promote? Um, I let's see. Do, 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 do. Oh, I'm excited to to see the bluest eye. Um, oh, oh yeah, we've been promoting that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know Michael J. Asbury's in that. Dominique Williams directed. So yeah. definitely. And also, I think Kimberly Ridgeway's in that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the uh, B8 Theater is doing Little Girl, My Little Girl. Oh. Uh, Deborah Cortez, and we've had her on when she was yeah. Deborah Murphy. Uh, she is uh, in the show. That'll be April the 17th at 7 p.m., and I'll have a link to that. Also, Theater Cultura. Has, I was hoping doing, you would do that one, yes. Yeah, La Lechuza. <clears throat> Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. That'll be April the 23rd, the 24th, and the 25th. Uh, the 23rd at 7 p.m., the 24th and 25th, they have a matinee at 2, and then uh, an evening show at 7, uh, I believe online. Linda Hamayo Hassan, we've had her on, and she wrote Cheer, Story of a Dreamer, and now she's back. She's, uh, she wrote the play. And that's it. That's all that I have. Uh, and did you enjoy yourself? Yeah, this is amazing. I loved it. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. And it was wonderful. Like I said, I, you know, I'm just so awed at everything that you've done. And, you know, now I hear, you know, you've created Theater Utopia and hopefully that'll be back up and all the writing and the directing. Uh, you've done so much at the at the young age. I mean, you know, you, you have a bright, bright future ahead of you. So we kind of skipped over um, the piano fight. Um, because there's a discussion about whether or not they can come back. And I forgot I heard it on the radio yesterday. It was a bigger thing, but they that was one of the people they interviewed was to talk about that because that's where Utopia was doing some shows. So oh, hopefully goodness. Piano Fight will be back. Yeah. yeah, I really hope so. There's such a huge <clears throat> venue for, for so many young theaters. Have yeah. you done have you done um, Piano Fight, Anne? Yeah, yeah. Two of our shows were there. Actually, I think more than that, maybe more like three or four. So yeah, yeah. No, they, they've been a wonderful venue, and I remember working at Piano Fight when we, um, it was um, musical musical cafe. <clears throat> the uh, oh, they the did 20, Piano 20, Fight. I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. they did twenty minute musicals. That's where we did our Nia, and it was a wonderful venue. Uh, before I forget, YouTube subscribers: Jen Coogan, Paulo Salazar, Giancarlo Gregoretti, Gregor, Gregoretti. Uh, Corinne Ritchie, thank you so much. Um, a guy named Perfect Timing, that's his uh, tag. Bob Zick, Joanna <laughs> Harris, John Burnett, Fred Pitts, and Aureen Almario. Those are Damn. some of the subscribers of our YouTube channel. And we want to say thank you so much. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe and um, you know, hit the thumbs up button or the thumb down button and uh, tell us what you like and what you don't like about the yay. And we will act accordingly. We will. Uh, Jen's birthday is today. Jen's, she was on my list. Jen. Jen, uh, Jen Burnett? No, Jen Coogan. No, Jen Coogan. 
Oh, yeah. yeah, there you go. There you go. So thank you, Jen, for uh, being a subscriber for the yay. Um, so yeah, so please uh, like, subscribe, and tell us what you like or what you don't like. Uh, if you're listening to this on the uh, Standard Operating Podcast app, we're on all podcast apps. We're on Spotify. So if you have the uh, the iPhone or iPad, you can click on that purple uh, iPad uh, I, the the uh, the app, and you can listen to us. If you are a um, SoundCloud user, or if you're an Android user, you can use the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com and you will find us. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you wanna advertise or if you just wanna advertise yourself, let us know, hit us up on Twitter. Um, I would say Snapchat, but we don't really use Snapchat anymore. Uh, Twitter. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know at, we I'm were. At, yeah, uh, I tried it and I was like, eh. Uh, I'm at Reg Space Clay on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm at Who's Your Hoosier. How about you, Anne? Are you on uh, social media at all? Um, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Anne Yumiko. Oh, oh, um, Anne Yumiko. Co? Oh, just Co? Just Co, yeah. Okay, got it. So, p- folks, if you want are looking for an actress or a playwright, or uh, you just want to contact Diane and let her know how wonderful her plays are. And put some where, money in her pocket. You do it. That's right. Put some money in her pocket. There you go. Uh, you can't go wrong with Anne. Thank you so much, Anne. And um, it's a wonderful day out there. So hopefully everyone will enjoy themselves. As Norman and I always say, we, we got to find a, a better, better sign off. And we are out. Out.